Happy Thursday, everyone. You are back at the Airport Minute, where each and every Monday through Friday we count up the best 137 minutes of the greatest disaster movie ever made at Airport uh, by Universal Pictures. I am one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDad.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv. And uh, in the navigator's chair on our little uh, journey today, uh, we have actor and voiceover artist extraordinaire, Mr. David DeVries. Greetings. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. We appreciate it very much. Yeah, you have you have the best pipes of anybody we've had on the show so far. So thank you for being here in front of the mic. Well, it's my uh, pleasure. Yeah, it's it's interesting to revisit this movie. Yeah. I, I have, do you remember seeing this? Uh, oh, my God. Yes. When it first came out? Or? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was um, I think I was probably in I think I was in sixth or seventh grade when this movie came out. And uh you know, I remember it's it's so interesting to have gone back to to watch the film again, which I hadn't done since I uh, reconnected with you guys. And uh, you know, it's uh, boy, it's it's amazing how cinema can be such a little um, history lesson, time capsule. Yeah, and the way that we look at the world. But uh, you know, there were a couple of things that that really struck me as I was watching it and kind of thinking back to my childhood. First of all. Uh, I, I had a, a very good friend of mine who, uh, you know, we were band nerds together and we were in, went all through high, uh, high school, elementary school together. But we both loved this movie and we both loved the soundtrack. And it was a huge, like, score when I can't remember whether I or he, I think he bought the album. He bought the soundtrack. You know, and Alfred Newman... Who is was a total badass, and of course, uh, you know his progeny hasn't done so badly either. Um, you know that music is just unbelievable. <laughs> it's yeah, so it, good. it really is a, a nice wrap up to a career. I mean, this was his final one. Oh, he was it? Didn't get yeah, he didn't get to go to the Oscars for this because he passed away shortly before. Well, just just before the movie was released. Mm. But it is it's just epic, and there's so many different styles. And yeah, and then that's something that's kind of interesting too is that. Uh, you don't you don't really see that or hear rather hear that in movies today. Like, for instance, I know we're not doing the minute that you're talking about, but when Helen Hayes first shows up, he goes in such a kind of a TV sitcom direction, you know, obviously, uh, you know, coding the whole scene with comic relief and everything like that. That doesn't really happen in modern cinema today. That would be just like way over the line. But yeah. if for that genre, that was like that was what you did, you know. Oh yeah, and if, even in this minute that we're looking at now, the uh, you know that undertone, that whole creepiness thing, it, you know, you're just seeing somebody saying goodbye to their wife, but it's, I mean, that whole those those strings just going off at odd uh, minor tones, and yeah, it really gives you that whole creepy feel well, we as know you're watching he's this. Literally unfold. saying goodbye. Yeah. Right. Well, you know the the really interesting thing I remember. Um, after having seen the movie, whatever, 35, 40 years ago, is it, how long was it? When was it released? 71? 1970. 1970. Oh, geez. I'm old. But, um... <laughs> Was that, uh, you know, I had no idea who Van Heflin was. I, I, I had no context when I saw the movie. And, of course, I absolutely thoroughly bought him as this kind of 
beleaguered middle-aged loser and then sometime thereafter was watching an old movie where he was a leading man and you know a vibrant uh good-looking hulking guy and it was just like i just had this revelation oh my god that's that guy from airport and you know it's sometimes you think that actors you know you see them in that time capsule and you don't think about what came after or what came before and if you've never seen them do anything you just see them for that but then to see him be this guy this you know this kind of hot leading man back in the 40s it was such a revelation to me i was like wow i couldn't it was interesting to make that connection and and kind of deepened my appreciation for how good an actor he really was yeah, he really sells it in every scene. It's just you believe he's uh, a little bit uh, detached and a little bit deranged, but he's trying to do it for love. And, you know, there's all these conflicting emotions in him. When yes, you're he, watching he's it. a terrorist for all the right reasons. <laughs> well, and that's a, that's another interesting part of this story is that, you know, we're it was kind of prescient for the kind of, you know, terroristic violence that the world would become so accustomed to. Mm-hmm. But it was it was kind of couched in these moralistic terms that we don't even know from these days. <laughs> yeah, he's he's almost not even a bad guy. I mean, I'm, I, he's sorry that the other people have to die, but mostly he's doing this to make sure his wife has a better life than the one he could provide right. for him. So you're, you, don't, you don't really feel like he's the enemy. It's more like somebody should talk this guy down. So it's it's kind of a, a movie without... Uh, with you know, without the the chief enemy that you, you know you want to hate, but right. you can't hate the guy. It's just you know, it, it you want to you want to give him twenty bucks and say, here, relax, we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, the, it, the other thing is that you know this movie uh, was kind of like was made with the the twilight of so many of these people's careers, you know, and you talked about Alfred Newman, like not even being able to make the Oscars, but, you know, Dino was, was on his last legs and Van Heflin and Helen Hayes, who of course had this storied career that I, I didn't know anything about until, you know, I knew that she was Dano's mom from, uh, you know, uh, Hawaii Five O, but uh, and had theaters and awards named after her and everything like that. But, you know, I didn't know her body of work, and there she is as this little old lady. So, it 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 kind of the whole movie has this feel of the end of an era, you know, and. Um, just the grittiness of that cafe where Maureen Stapleton and Van Heflin meet. You know, it's, I remember it because I was alive, but for people who uh, came after us, that must look very strange, you know, to, to see kind of that gritty end of an era New York kind of mm. brought to life. Well, it's not New York, it's Chicago, Chicago. I guess, right? It's Chicago. Yeah, but- yeah. You you can't see this scene taking place at a subway where she's a sandwich yeah. artist or something like that. I don't <laughs> think it would play as well. No. Um, yeah, and of, yeah, and of course she had a she went on to do amazing things. I mean, I don't know whether I had seen her. I might have seen her in like an All in the Family or something like that. Um, but I remember her most distinctly from um, Interiors, which was one of my favorite movies of the seventies. And not Woody really, Allen, right? Yeah, it was it was Woody Allen's ode to Ingmar Bergman, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I don't think it was that critically well received because it was it was so 
obviously derivative and kind of him kind of morphing into Ingmar Bergman. But but it is an amazing movie and she is incredible in it. So, yeah, yeah. it's just a really I mean, everybody in this film is a heavy hitter. Yeah. Yeah. They're all just and they all you know, they all fire on all cylinders. And even even uh, Burt Lancaster, who who didn't want to be here in this film. Uh, he does a great job. Well, you know, the one thing I was going to tell you about uh, about Bert, you know, from an actor's point of view, yes, yes. Uh, is that you have to watch Bert Lancaster's head because, because, you know, there's a style, there's a leading man style of acting that he was absolutely um, a master at, which is that the head does not move. When he talks, see, I, I, I'm a, that's one of the biggest challenges for me as a film actor is that, you know, when I talk and I emote and everything, my head is bobbing and it's shaking and it's doing all kinds of stuff like that, which is just death for the camera. But, you know, Lancaster was one of those guys who, when he said his lines, that head was like it had been screwed into his neck. It was not moving. And all the, you know, all the facial stuff, it's all happening without, you know, him kind of like, not that he looks stiff. He, you don't notice it. No. You, on, no. you only notice, you only notice that somebody moves their head when they do it too much, you know? Um, but this is kind of, and you can go back into the, you know, the old school actors and, and now present day actors and the leading men and women, they keep that head absolutely still so that the audience can only look at their eyes and their face and they're not noticing anything else. And he was a master at that. Wow. Yeah. See, that's what a great perspective. Yeah. We, we've, we've been watching, uh, uh, Burt Lancaster, uh, in previous movies, Mark and I talked about, uh, or we've talked about The Swimmer, his, the movie they had just done previously to this. And it's just, he, when he's on screen, he just takes charge of the whole scene. You, you hit, can't help but watch him, and he compels you to follow whatever lines he's saying. And he moves with such grace, like a gazelle, you know, and he, uh, he was a, a circus performer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's it's interesting, you know, when I teach um when I teach on camera acting, um part of my theory is is that it's it's kind of a paradox that the camera loves stillness, but it also loves change. So that the the great film actors have this amazing ability to embrace both of those opposites and he is a very still actor and you know he's got that voice where he just kind of talks like this and he just delivers you know and it's just you know it's just like his his delivery is like an arrow you know being shot through the air um but he also has just enough facial you know psycho-emotional bandwidth that rolls across his face that you're you're getting that story you know when you've got alfred newman's you know creepy weirdo subtext or whatever going on underneath that supplies oh at least 33 percent of the the subtext of the character you know so you don't need 
to, you know, uh, put a hat on a hat, as Mel Brooks would say, or, you know, gild the lily. You, you've got to make sure that your part of the storytelling is just enough and not too much. And he, he was great at that, you know? But it's that combination, again, of stillness and change that the great actors are, are able to kind of like perfectly blend. One of the things we've been talking about on the show is that uh, George Seaton seems to be uh, what they'd call an actor's director. He always allows the uh, actors to have things to do and be able to sell their parts. And uh, I've noticed in just about every scene, he has some bit of business for the actors to you know play with for their hands. And in this scene that we're watching in minute 39, we're seeing Inez Guerrero, Maureen Stapleton, uh, doing some stuff. We're looking for change in her purse, and she's emptying... Uh, the tip jar, and uh, even with Van Heflin, he's got an ability to hold on to Maureen Stapleton's hands and and just keep that keep that activity going. Is, is that have you dealt with a lot of directors who didn't understand that concept that that an actor needs something to do in a scene, even if it's you know that minor? Well, I don't know anything about uh, George Seaton, but he I, I would just from that small bit of information, I would say that he's probably. Uh, a theater director or he came out of the theater because that is that's Stanislavski 101 mm. you know there's there's um there's what we call small action and small action is is activity and i always as an actor i love it as a director i'm always looking for uh things for actors to do like what inez does and and kind of keeping active because first of all it roots you to the situation the context of the scene it it makes it real for you and it also has this kind of psychological um it's a little bit of a trick in that when you're performing a physical action in a scene you it takes that little that little extra bit of self-consciousness about you trying to emulate reality but it not being reality away from you so that you're just focused on performing the action and then you can let the dialogue and and all the other given circumstances kind of just surround that and so it's a really really good way of of grounding yourself as an actor. I always love to find a prop or you know when we're doing a, if I'm a directing an actor in a scene, I'm trying to find them stuff to do that would not just made up stuff that doesn't have any uh relationship to the situation but just real life stuff because they suddenly become more real when those activities um are at, you know, at their beck and call. Yeah, it, it can't. Otherwise, it looks like you're on the Tonight Show and everybody just sitting on a couch chatting with each other. So yes, it, and then of course you also have the, you know, the added thing of the, the the really the really wonderful actors will figure out a way to have that small action reveal something about character and situation, mm. so that. For instance, if somebody is holding a glass or the way or they're drinking something, it's not just that they're holding a glass. It's the way they're holding a glass or they can underline a, a passage of a line. Uh, they can underline a word that is important to the story by just doing something extra in the how of that action that that makes it kind of pop up in high relief to the audience and they get that little extra bit of story 
you know, broadcast to them. So those are those are little tricks that should be invisible to anybody, but they're kind of subliminally, you know, very effective in in helping the director tell his story. And and both of these actors that we're looking at on screen, they've you know, they they know the ropes pretty well. I mean, they're obviously acting off of each other. They're familiar with what they're supposed to do. And it's it's really, really very refreshing seeing two people who know what they're doing do it. <laughs> yeah. And it may not be that that was necessarily George, the director. It may be that, um, you know, because really good actors get together and they, they say, hey, we've got this scene. So what can I was we do? Gonna, yeah, I was going to ask. So you think that maybe they would work it out in advance? Well, you know. That totally can be, you know, just depending on the relationship with the, you know, that with each other, with each other and stuff. But, uh, you know, they're all pros. They may have said, yeah, let's, um, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, um, I'll be looking through my, my purse and I'll be, yeah. And then I can, you know, and so you just feed Mm -hmm. each other and, and you, you bring that because, you know, when you get hired, when, when you're hiring actors, as a director, you want them to do that homework so that, you know, you're, they're making your job easier. It's like they're coming in with a whole uh, phalanx of things to do that uh, then you can curate and you can go, yeah, I like that. Can Let's lose that thing, but let's keep that. And, you know, so yeah. so give the director as, as much as he wants, you know. Yeah, now the, these two actors obviously they they get along well. They're pros. They understand things. From what we understand from uh, the the work on uh, Airport, Burt Lancaster didn't get along at all with Gene Seberg. Burt was a one take and we're done kind of guy, and Gene Seberg wanted to do it you know Multiple ten times. twenty times until until it was right. That's like that's and, like Ishtar, ba- yeah. Beatty and, and Hoffman. They were uh, at total odds about that too. Yeah, it, it, but it. It doesn't really come across on screen. You don't get any kind of a feeling that there's any kind of animosity between them. I mean, admittedly, they're both professionals, but I was trying to figure out how a director deals with that kind of a strife on a set that, you know, you just tell them to you know, put it aside and get through the scene. Yeah, that's um, that is really difficult, you know, because everybody's uh, everybody's doorway to their kind of their selves, their creative process is you know, placed in a different part of the house. And uh and, you know, that can be really difficult. And I know that with Ishtar, uh, you know, Beatty was like Lancaster. He's like, I, can, I get it in the first three takes and then I'm just pissing in the wind. Hmm. And and Hoffman was just getting started after take 20, you know. So yeah. it was it was a problem. You know, that that's a real problem. And, and maybe sometimes directors even think about that when they're making casting choices. They're going... Yeah, I don't know if this chemistry is going to work because they work really differently. So, you know, it's tough. It's it's uh, it's such an interesting um, thing to to realize that people get there and <laughs> by different routes. No, yeah. And it never, you know, like like I said before, it never shows up in the screen. Everything that you see on the screen is professionals being professionals. And even this little, you know, this little scene of him saying goodbye to uh, to his wife it plays well. They've got the information that they need to get to the next scene, and you'd never know what went behind it. And audiences don't even think about that. It's like, oh, these two people are talking, but they don't realize the mechanics of getting to this point and you know, getting it on the screen. Yeah, and and it has so much to do with context, you know, because um, the direct 
usually you're not shooting in sequence and, you know, they, they might have shot that, you know, far away from the preceding scene and the subsequent scene. So, you know, you have to have that kind of barometer to kind of to understand just how much story uh, to tell, you know, what's really germane to that particular point in the movie. Heflin could have been, well, he could have made the choice to just totally break down and cry and 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 lose it, but that would be too much, right? That would yeah. that would uh, give away too much of the story. It needed to be measured, but it needed to be fraught enough so that we understand the stakes. So you know, it's it's always it's always a, a negotiation about how far or how much story to tell. And how does that, like, uh, on a film set, like, yeah, as you said, this this scene could have been shot, you know, weeks after their last scene or whatever. Does is is a is it the continuity person that says, okay, well, in the previous scene, you, you know, you were doing this or whatever? I mean, how does that work? Well, the really good script supervisors and, and continuity people are are all over that. You know, they'll just come right up to you and say, no, you you had the glass in your other hand, mm-hmm. or. Um, do you remember when we did this, the scene before this, you were there, you know, so they will definitely help you. Um, if everybody's kind of on board, the, the DP might have something to say about that. The The director will have their input. So, um, but as an actor, you know, you're kind of responsible for your mapping. I mean, I think that when you're a stage, when you're working on the stage, you're really not thinking as much about uh, before and after and kind of mapping what you do and how you do it because it's all one gestalt. You're all kind of, you know, you're in the just, moment. You're just doing the play. Right. But, um, but with the recorded media, in, whether it's television or film or even, you know, even recording uh, audiobooks or something, you know, you really have to kind of understand where you were and and have some idea have made some choices about you know what you're doing and how you're doing it so i i have a question we are it, we're looking at the two actors but there are actually two more actors in this scene uh the, the two fellows that are eating dinner up against the back wall right what is the secret of being good wallpaper as a as a background actor how do you is there a trick to being innocuous Wow. You know, they they were probably, I'm almost guaranteed that they were extras. Um, and uh, I, I, I have been an extra. I was an extra twice in two movies um, long, long ago. Uh, my ego just couldn't take it. It was just, uh, I wanted so badly to be, you know, doing something. So I would say that the key to good background acting is to have your ego absolutely drained, to have no desire to stand out or be anything other than the wallpaper or, you know, that you are required to be. Uh, There's nothing (laughs) worse than seeing an extra who is trying to be more than an extra in a scene, who's trying to get attention. I actually saw, I was watching House of Cards the other day and, uh, and there was an extra who was just stood out like a sore thumb because they were trying to do something. And, oh. you know, that's that's not good. You don't want that. You don't want the audience to be focused on anything other than 
the action. The, the action, the story. You're not the story when you're the when you're the background. You're you're you know, you're one of George Seurat's dots. And yeah. if you can't live with that dude, then you know, you need to get out. You need to be selling insurance. By the way, I did <laughs> I did want to point out that the uh the guy slurping soup in the corner is named Joe Plosky. And Airport nice. Airport was his last film. He did Hello Dolly. He did Skidoo. Uh he had a career going back to the thirties. Isn't that funny? Well, you know, uh, there are career extras, and uh, you know, it was a decent living. You know, it, you never got rich, but you could probably back in the day, you could probably afford a, you know, a house in um, Eagle Rock or somewhere in the Valley or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I have a I have a friend um, named Robert Rabinsky who actually was an actor for a good long while. He was in the original cast of Hair. His father was. A fam- he was a very well-known extra. He was an extra for a good portion of his life. He Woody Allen loved him. He was in all of Woody's movies for years and years and years. Uh, I don't know what his father's name was, but it, you know, obviously somebody Rabinsky, Mister Rabinsky. Uh, but yeah, he and he loved the work. He absolutely loved it. Mm. Well, that's- yeah, it, it, his, his IMDb. B credits are probably longer than Michael Caine's. <laughs> yeah, if he does have an IMDb page. Yeah, but you, when you're an extra, you don't uh, you don't get a credit. So, right, right. you know, it doesn't well, work out so well. Let's let's just hear it for Joe Plosky, ladies. Joe Plosky, yes, good man. No, no Oscar, but steady work. Yeah, steady work and good soup, hopefully. In this, <laughs> the probably commissary. Cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, this has been a really excellent minute. Um, David, thanks so much for uh, for being on the show. I hope you can be with us tomorrow uh, when we're going to finish up the week and uh, talk about some more, uh, well, some more scenes with uh, Mr. Guerrero as he uh, boards the bus for his destiny. Uh, if uh, for our, our listeners, if you'd like to uh, follow along with this conversation and also join us for some comments, uh, you can reach out to us on a bunch of different social media. We're available on Twitter at Airport Minute. You can uh, get to us on Facebook at Airport Minute and also the Airport Minute Commanders Club. Also, we have a great big website uh, at uh, airportminute.com where every episode is listed out and you can comment at the bottom of every page. Uh, if you'd like to hear us Monday through Friday, uh, delivered direct to your mobile device, you can sign up and subscribe on iTunes. Look for Airport Minute. Uh, We'll continue this conversation tomorrow, Friday. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, until then, good day. Bye-bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling.